Well, thank you again to Megan and Valerie uh, for being here this morning. Um, we as a church are so thankful that this pregnancy clinic is in Bellingham. Uh, the work you do, I imagine, is not easy. So keep up the great work. We are praying for you. We turn to our Bibles this morning. We're going to the Gospel of Matthew. We pick up in Matthew chapter 27. As you do, you may recall a time not too long ago. It was October 3rd, 1995, when 150 million viewers tuned into the courtroom of a man named Judge Ito. The verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial had been decided, and for 11 months, his defense team, their 12 attorneys, dubbed the Dream Team, sought to prove his innocence. It took the jury four hours to return with a not guilty verdict. You may recall that passions on both sides of that verdict wrote books and taught in classrooms. They made the news. In one book, a former prosecutor argued against the verdict, stating, quote, other than when a killer is apprehended in the act, I have never seen a more obvious case of guilt. All of the evidence, not some or most of it, points irresistibly to Simpson's guilt and his alone. Well, this morning, we turn to another courtroom. And it's one where you will never see a more obvious case of innocence. It's one where all of the evidence, not some of it, not most of it, but all of it points to the defendant's innocence. It's a trial where the judge is prosecutor. You will meet him. He's a man named Pontius Pilate. He tries Jesus of Nazareth, the defendant. And in this trial, we'll meet a number of witnesses, chief priests, elders of the people. We'll meet a a ruckus Passover crowd and a Gentile woman, the wife of a governor. But through this trial, this sham trial, we will also learn important roles that our Lord performs. We're going to witness two roles of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Verse by verse, each week we go through this gospel of Matthew, and we now approach the end of that gospel. And we might say that in many ways this is drawing to a climax And next week, Jesus will give his life for yours. Now, Matthew has marvelously recorded the life of Jesus Christ in his gospel. And he set out, I believe, successfully to prove that Jesus is king, the promised Messiah sent from God. And clocking in at 1,071 verses, it's God-breathed scripture, the hope would be that it would have an impact on our lives. That as we get to know this king and see his work, it affects the way we live. You and I walking away, not just with a relationship with God, but one that is vibrant and active and dynamic. I believe that would be Matthew's hope for us. So as we weigh in on these roles Jesus performs this morning, I'd like you to consider what impact they then have on your life. I want to begin with the first few verses, 11 through 14, and here we see Jesus as the quiet king. 
It's the kingship of Jesus yet again. Jesus is the quiet king. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Uh, Jesus is on trial for his kingship. All the way back, beginning in chapter 1, we learn that he has the genealogy of a king. In chapter 2, wise men came to visit a king. And then throughout this gospel, he displays his kingship. Jesus ruling over the demonic and disease and death proving his kingship, ruling over creation, and even accusations of jealous critics. But now the king is on trial. In our account, technically, he began back in verse 1. If you're in chapter 27, look back at verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. You may recall that Matthew then records an interlude. You can see this in verses 4 through 10. It's as though Matthew steps out of this scene to explain the death of Judas. In verse 11, he now returns to the court proceedings, really picking up from verse 2. And we begin this morning with the fourth of what will be six trials. And we're going to explain how trials five and six work in a moment. Uh, For now, it's sufficient to say that the first three trials, Jesus went before the Jewish religious leaders. And the, the second three, it was before these Roman governing authorities. At this point, he's bound. He's bruised. He received a beating from the religious leaders the night prior. It is early on Friday morning, and he stands before this man named Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, Pontius Pilate served as governor of Judea. Now, remember, he, he's, a, he's a Roman governor, a, a pagan, serving in an occupied territory. Rome would come in and take over a territory and establish their own governments, their own governors. They need to keep order after all. And he has a slice of that territory conquered by Rome. That is to say then that Pilate is a ruler, under rulers. He reports to those above him. He's not independent. He's not a dictator. And he ruled at a time called the Pax Romana. This is about 200 years of history where Rome achieved a relatively a peaceful atmosphere in their conquered territories, somewhat unique among territories or history of the world. What they did is they went in and they conquered territory, and then they applied their own laws, taxing the people, keeping military present, but allowed the people to, in some ways, rule themselves. Now, you hear that, but it's not all sunshine and flowers, I can assure you. One Roman historian named Tacitus writes of the Romans, quote, they create a desolation and they call it a peace. In other words, their brutality is so extensive, 
it creates a peace. Who's going to fight back against this? You might recall crucifixion being an illustration of that. So these Roman rulers then were in an odd spot. They had to, to achieve this balance. They had to maintain this balance. They had to, to be oppressive to keep rebellion down, but peaceful to keep the folks happy. I'm not sure that Pilate ever actually achieved this. In other words, he didn't exactly know what lever to pull and when to pull it. Violence on one hand to instill fear and keep order, yet cooperation and benevolence to the people to to win them to happiness, to peace. Now, to give you a few examples, on one occasion, he stole the temple treasury to pay for an aqueduct he was building. Well, this resulted in uh, an attack against any Jews who protested. On another occasion, he marched Roman soldiers with flags bearing the image of Caesar right into Jerusalem. They would take that as a great offense, uh, an idolatrous offense. That led to a bloody rebellion. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, tells us that he killed Jewish worshipers as they made their sacrifices. Another Jewish historian, a man named Philo, describes Pilate, quote, By nature, he's rigid and stubbornly harsh, a person of spiteful disposition and an exceedingly wrathful man. He writes of the bribes and the acts of pride, the acts of violence, the outrages, the cases of spiteful treatment, the constant murders without trial, the ceaseless and most grievous brutality to which the Jews might accuse him. This is Jewish history recording Pilate. Now, he normally lives in a town called Caesarea, but he's in Jerusalem. He's in town to keep peace for the Passover. A big, exciting Jewish celebration, drawing pilgrims from all over the land. He, with his extra soldiers, are in town. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus saying, It is as you say. So for Pilate, this is his chance. This is his chance to show his abilities. This is his chance to to win the people to his leadership. Here is Pilate to please Rome, perhaps to get promotion. The religious leaders, we read, already determined to kill Jesus. And they need a rubber stamp. They come to Pilate. Rome, after all, reserved the right to capital punishment. We might say these were some of their rules of the territories they governed. And the Jews needed just a quick, swift verdict. Pilate, give us the okay. We need you to hear our case and decide with us. So here is what they say. By the way, all four Gospels record this trial, so we'll draw on all of them this morning. In Luke 23, they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now you see what this is meant to do to Pilate. It's a form of manipulation. He's misleading our nation. (laughs) I don't think this impacted Pilate at all. He probably thought, well, I think you're misleading your nation. Rome alone knows how to lead a people. 
He's forbidding to pay taxes. Well, that might have got his attention. We, as Rome, after all, need our money. He himself is the Christ, the anointed one, a king. Now that got his attention. Because in the mind of Rome, in the mind of Pilate, there is no other anointed one. There is no other king but Caesar and Caesar alone. And you you rewind that back into the charges that they made prior. Perhaps it elevated them. Well, here's this man claiming to be a king, the anointed one, pulling people into his way of thinking, encouraging people not to pay taxes. It begins to make a little more sense. And it is, of course, that last charge. It's in verse 11 of our text. This is the one he's concerned about. They know this charge is a charge that Rome cannot help but address. And Pilate isn't going to do this just by rubber stamp. No, Pilate wants to hear this case. And he's going to serve as the prosecutor. In our account this morning, he's going to ask seven questions. In verse 24, he will serve as the judge, oddly exonerating himself. In our account this morning, the defendant will speak one time. Two words in Greek. It is as you say. This is the defense of Jesus before Pilate. Now, to this charge, Jesus just can't say no. Pilate charging him with being a king, that would not be true. Jesus is, after all, a king. To say yes would no doubt be misunderstood by Pilate. Pilate's thinking in terms of earthly rulers and earthly kingdoms. Jesus is a king, it is true, but far beyond the comprehension of Pilate. While Matthew summarizes this exchange between the two, John's gospel elaborates it. In chapter 18, there is more to fill in here. There's a back and forth that does occur between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears my voice hears truth. Now as a result of this, take note, Pilate declares Jesus innocent. He's innocent. Do you think the religious leaders are going to let this go? No. By no means. We might say that they approach the bench. He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. The implication being that this Jesus is on some kind of a crusade. He's traveling about the land, stirring up the nation. And here's where our fifth trial fits in, by the way. It's at this point that Pilate sends Jesus to a man named Herod. 
Pilate is in charge of an area called Judea. Herod's in charge of an area called Galilee. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. This is Luke 23. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. This circus yields only disappointment for poor Herod. There's no sign performed. That's what Herod wanted to see. In fact, it seems as though he spent a good deal of energy cross-examining Jesus, only to get no answer in return. On top of this, there's that wolf pack nearby. We know them as the religious leaders. They're continuing to hurl insults and accusations. Herod returns Jesus. This is our sixth and final trial. Really, it's the continuation of the fourth, but many call it trial number six. And while Jesus was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Jesus says nothing in his defense. You know, it's been observed that this trial is not so much about what, what, what the Jewish people, the religious leaders think about Jesus, but something about Pilate. There's, more of a, uh, there's, there's a religious nature to this, and Jesus doesn't want to answer that. He's talking to Pilate about his kingship. And Pilate declared him innocent, remember? Jesus is innocent. And Pilate, Pilate needs to bang the gavel and, and stop this proceeding. But what does he do? He asks another question. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Do we understand that Pilate had to ask this question? Almost as though he he could not help himself. It was irresistible. How many men stood before Pilate claiming their innocence over the years? protesting their charges, pouring out excuses. Pilate, I didn't do it. I'm wrongly accused. Somebody else did it. How many men at this time are pining away in the dungeons of Jerusalem, in these Roman jails, saying, you have the wrong man? I bet somewhere between 99 to 100% of all trials for Pilate happened to the wrong guy. One defendant after another claiming their innocence. And what do we have here? Oppressed and afflicted, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Pilate's amazed. He's never seen anything like this. Jesus is not begging for mercy. Jesus is not offering a defense. The loudest voices in the room are the religious leaders. Jesus is the quiet king. 
And I believe there's application for us in this passage this morning. But I want to say at the same time, there's a way that this applies to us, and there's a way that it doesn't. Like Jesus, you and I, we must suffer humbly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Now, to put it mildly, Jesus, he was not treated fairly. Jesus did not get what he deserved. What did he deserve? Well, he deserved a full acquittal, beginning with an apology that should have bled into a plea for forgiveness, that should have led to a begging for mercy. It should have been concluded by repentant mercy. That would have been justice. That would have been the right outcome. But notice in his unjust treatment, he didn't lash out in anger. And Jesus didn't claim his rights. In fact, he didn't even utter a word. I think when when you and I are unjustly treated, the temptation is to react in the flesh. It, It could be over just small, everyday unfairness. Maybe someone's cutting in line or that grumpy cashier. Maybe it was a failed customer service. It could also be for our faith. I mean, we know the world isn't exactly lining up to praise us for tough stands for the Lord. But in 1 Peter, we learn that when we respond like Jesus to unjust treatment, what do we learn first? Well, we fulfill our purpose. We fulfill our purpose. This smooth, scenic road, that's not the road to heaven. God purposed suffering as part of the means of of our sanctification and that journey toward heaven. In fact, the Bible says here it's one purpose that he has for our lives. Uh, we could wish that he ordained things differently, but, but we know that though he did it, and he'll give us what we need, like grace and power in those moments, treated unjustly. But secondly, when we suffer unjustly, we act like Christ. Peter wrote that we have Jesus as an example to follow. We might look here in our text this morning. What was Jesus doing to suffer well before Pilate? What didn't he do? If we meditate on the response of Jesus, we're better equipped to act like him in those moments. Thirdly, we learn here that we find favor with God when treated unjustly. I mean, that's our heartbeat, isn't it? To please the Lord, to be like the Lord. Peter says that twice in in the text, we find favor with God. But I want you to see that there's a way also that we can't be like Jesus. I would say that the silence of Jesus is its own witness in this courtroom this morning. What is it testifying to? His love for you and his desire to obey the Father at all costs. Jesus ultimately is not going to allow anything to interfere with his death. He died for sins. We say that, yes, but he died for you. And that was part of this whole proceeding. And for Pilate, well, he's never seen anything like this. 
He believes Jesus to be innocent. And he now needs a new tactic to achieve it. And we learn something secondly about Jesus. Not only is he the quiet king, it's our second point. He's our voluntary vicar. He's our voluntary vicar. Vicar is just another word for a substitute. V-I-C-A-R. And I use that word this morning because lots of times in theology, the word vicarious atonement is used. It's a big word, but it means what we believe. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against our sin as a substitute. He was our stand-in, our vicar. In verse 15, we continue this account in the court of Pilate. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, well, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scorched, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate's trial falls apart. His whole plan unravels despite numerous attempts to show the innocence of Jesus. He caves to the injustice. In verse 15, you notice that he utilized a custom of the Jewish people. Apparently at the Passover feast, the custom would be to release one prisoner to the people. This is where we meet a man named Barabbas. In verse 16, you notice that the word used to describe him was the word notorious. Mark chapter 15, verse 7 fills this in for us. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, in that statement, we learn quite a few things about Barabbas. We learn that at some point, at least in the recent past, he took part in a riot or an insurrection in Jerusalem. It could have been some kind of political revolt. It would have been an attempt to overthrow the Roman occupation. It seems as though there were a number of people involved in this, and at least one person was murdered. Presumably, this would have been a Roman, probably a Roman soldier. And Barabbas was found arrested, found guilty, and imprisoned. John, chapter 18, verse 40, labels Barabbas a, quote, robber. And that term in this time would have had to do with being like a highwayman or, or a bandit. 
In fact, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the same word is used of the attackers in that parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to, to Jericho and he fell among robbers. It's the same word used of Barabbas. So by the standards of American law, you and I would say that this man had quite a rap sheet. Multiple felonies for Barabbas. In Aramaic, his name means, quote, son of a father. More specifically, it means son of Abba. You might recall Jesus addressed God this way. Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Jesus is, essentially, Jesus is the son of a father, Father God. Now, here's where things get really interesting with Barabbas. In some ancient manuscripts, going all the way back, the full name of Barabbas is, quote, Jesus Barabbas. And if any of you out there have an NIV translation from the year 2011 or later, the verse 16 reads, quote, at that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Now, there's different reasons that translations will include the name Jesus here, and there's reasons that they won't. Favors including the inclusion of that name, or reasons including the first name. The early church fathers were familiar with this, with this name Jesus Barabbas, not Barabbas alone. And if you look at verse 17, this might be another reason to include the name Jesus. Notice how Pilate gives a description for him. He's almost drawing a distinction between this fellow over here and this one over here. He says, Jesus, who was called the Christ... And that can be said against this Jesus who is called Barabbas. Now, most of our Bibles don't include the word Jesus. It's only Barabbas. And many ancient manuscripts only read Barabbas. It's significant that neither Mark, Luke, or John include the name Jesus for Barabbas' first name. And it's thought, in fact, that this first name Jesus was dropped by copyists. That's how... We got our scriptures before the printing press. They would copy it by hand. Scribes or copyists dropped the name, probably feeling uncomfortable about its proximity to Jesus, the Christ. But then again, that might just be the point, right? God sovereignly ordaining all of these events. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus comes that close. Jesus draws very near to sinners. Now, of course, Pilate has no concept of this. And for all of his character flaws, he's no dummy either. He's got a pretty good handle on the politics of the day. He realizes in verse 18 what the Jewish religious leaders are up to. They envy Jesus. In fact, that's what this whole thing's about. It's doubtful, he's probably thinking, that we'd be here today if they weren't so envious of this Jesus. I think the religious leaders envy that attention that that Jesus received. Just remember, it was five days ago, we call it Passion Week, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, seated atop a colt, and he came into huge acclaim. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People were excited about this Jesus. When's the last time the religious leaders felt that? So, of course, Pilate's thinking, these people are going to choose Jesus over Barabbas. 
If I put Jesus up here and Barabbas, they're going to take Jesus any day. But it's at this point, as you may have observed, that his whole trial irrevocably collapses. He basically loses control. And he gets a tap on the shoulder. And he receives a message from his wife. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, she says. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. There's some confirmation for you, Pilate. And it's around this time, or it's even while this is taking place, I take the first word of verse 20 to connect these events that are happening. Pilate on the judgment seat and the religious leaders out in the crowd. The chief priests and the elders persuade the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. I think the religious leaders at this point are absolutely livid. Their rubber stamp had not gone well at all. They've traveled around Jerusalem for different trials. It seems as though Pilate's still like teetering on the edge of letting this man go. He's all but declared the man innocent to the crowds. They're now working their way out among the crowd. And Pilate, I believe, he inadvertently opened a door to them to be able to do this. And I doubt that he expected the religious leaders to be so prepared for this new round of attack against Jesus. And I doubt he expected the crowd to be so impressionable, too. I mean, perhaps the crowd at this point is more about the home field than the visitor. And that is to say, Palm Sunday, that greeting that Jesus got, that would be more of the, the Galileans and those who followed Jesus into town rather than the Jerusalem natives themselves. Not sure that Pilate factored that in. And perhaps the crowd favors the opinion of their religious leaders more than Pilate. Go figure. These people might be voting against Pilate just because Pilate said to do it. The crowd might even like this idea of insurrection. They are no fans of Rome. And I'll tell you what, from the crowd's perspective, Jesus didn't lead an insurrection. At least Barabbas gave it a go. And Pilate's closing argument, why crucify him? What evil has he done? The shouts grow louder, crucify, crucify, crucify. And then the verdict is rendered. One man declared guilty, and another man declared innocent. Notice in verse 26, it's the guilty verdict. After having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. In verse 24, the not guilty verdict, Pilate took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to that yourselves. Does hand washing absolve Pilate of his guilt? No. There is no amount of ritual. There is no effort. There is no work. There are no accomplishments. There are no giving. There is no serving. There's no right intentions or warm hearts or good energy. Nothing can wash Pilate's guilt from his sin. Nothing can wash your guilt and my guilt from our sin. Nothing except Jesus, our vicar. Jesus, our substitute. He took the place of all who come to him by faith. Their sin is removed. Their guilt is erased. And in just a few hours from this passage, Jesus is going to hang on a cross 
And he's going to hang on a cross between two robbers. It's been said that the cross that he bears was a cross meant for that third robber, for a man named Barabbas. And on that Friday, for Barabbas, when that key turned and those heavy iron chains fell to the ground, you never saw a man more stunned than Barabbas. No one escapes bondage. And I think that day, as he walked away from death into new life, if he would have looked over his shoulder and saw up on the stage beside the judgment seat, Jesus, quiet, bleeding, bound, his face swollen from beatings, that day the innocent was condemned and the captive set free. Next week, we'll follow his journey to the cross and his death. But if you're here this morning and you have not received the freedom that Jesus gives you, the forgiveness of sins and the liberty of new life, I'd love to talk to you afterward. Please don't be afraid to contact me or or stop and talk on your way out. But if Jesus this morning is your king, then you're free. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer bound You're no longer guilty, but you are free to serve your king. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, there are no words that we can speak to capture the depth of your beauty. And there is no song that we could sing to honor the weight of your glory. Jesus, there's no one like you. We love you. We adore you. Amen.